Growing up can be a challenge. I don't know if you find growing up a bit of a challenge. I wonder how you think you're going at just growing up in life. Um, I came across a bit of a quiz online and I thought it had some interesting questions. I wonder if you have to sort of rate yourself in these questions, which I'll just do it quietly, maybe jot down, which, yeah, just see how you're going. Let's see how we go here, put this in. Question number one. What time do you usually wake up on the weekend? Just take a mental note. Jot down your answers as we go. Out of interest, did anyone actually have the, either of the first two answers before seven or seven to eight? Anyone who's actually an undergraduate? <laughs> Secondly, you've made some pasta but just realised all your crockery is dirty. What do you do? You wash up a plate to eat it, of course. Just eat it straight out of the saucepan. It saves washing up. Put it on the plate you ate lunch off. There's only a few crumbs on it anyway. That's pretty smart, isn't it? A lot of you going, oh, I do that. I must remember that one for next time. This would never happen because I will always wash up straight away. And I'll be going, really? That's an option. Yes, there you go. What about, oh, uh, that's a bit dumb. Uh, What about this one? On average, how many days a week do you cook for yourself? How grown up, how adult are you? What about the next one? Do you know how to bleed a radiator? Yes, 
I've never done it, but I reckon I could. No. Or what? How about, how about this? How about this one? No. Okay, it's dead. When did you last go to the dentist? Anyone do the first two? Been in the last six months or in the last year? Not too bad. Anyone do number three? I've been in the last year, but my parents booked the appointment. <laughs> a few, a few, yes. Uh, who takes care of the bills in your house? I live with my parents, so they do it. I do it myself, one of my housemates. What do you think being grown up entails? Does it entail these sort of things? Here's my final one. If I had a kid tomorrow, how well do you think you'd be able to deal with it? It would be an absolute disaster. I'm panicking even thinking about it. I would struggle big time, definitely ask my parents to help a lot. I would mess up a lot, but I reckon I might be able to manage. I think I might actually do pretty well. I feel kind of ready. Who said that one? Who said, I think I might, I might do all right. I feel a few, a few, yeah. Anyone say, I'd nail it. I'm totally up for the challenge. And then a few of us went, oh, that's easy. I've actually had a kid. Doesn't mean you actually do a good job of it. It just means, well, I can tick that box and uh, I can move on to the next thing. What does it take to be grown up? To be adult? Do you think you've made it yet? Are you ready to be a grown-up? Same goes actually for being a Christian. Are you ready to be a grown-up Christian? Or are you stuck in an infantile faith? Are you ready to be a grown-up Christian? Or are you stuck in an infantile faith? It's a great shame when someone avoids growing up in life instead of rising to the challenge of adult life, the challenge and the joys of adult life, they instead hide in immaturity. That's a great shame. Similarly, it's a real shame when followers of Jesus avoid growing up in their faith. They won't go on to maturity in Jesus. They choose to stay with an immature, infantile faith. I guess the question today is, might that be you? Might you be a person who's actually stuck in an infantile faith? Are you ready, if you're a follower of Jesus, to be a grown-up Christian? What does being a grown-up Christian even look like? Well, this section that we're looking at in the book of Hebrews today from the Christian New Testament is going to help us understand that question. So if you've got your Bible there, it'd be really helpful to open it up to Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 6. We're jumping in at chapter 5, verse 11. And uh, three sections today in this section of the book of Hebrews. First of all, a rebuke. The writer rebukes the Christians he's writing to because they are stuck in an infantile faith. If you've got uh, your Bible there, you can see chapter 5, verse 12. He says, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, he says, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. So he's saying to them, by now you should be teachers. You guys have been Christians for quite a while. You should be teaching other people, but actually you need a teacher. You need, in fact, remedial instruction. 
in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You need to hear the elementary truths all over again. You're still, in his analogy, on milk instead of moving on to solid food. Now, of course, being on milk is fine if you actually are a baby. It's just not fine if you're meant to have grown up. Similarly, if you're a brand new Christian, a brand new person following Jesus, it's right that you concentrate on the elementary truths of following Jesus. You need the basics. It's not okay if you've been a Christian for a long time and you're still having to hear the basics over again because you haven't got it yet. That's the situation he's addressing here. So first of all then, what does it mean to have an infantile faith? Have a look at verses 13 and 14. He explains it for us. He says, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So a couple of things you notice there that help us understand what an infantile faith looks like. Verse 13, they're not acquainted or skilled with the word of righteousness. They don't understand really what right behaviour is and what wrong behaviour is. They've not, not understanding of that. And you can see that then in verse 14 again, they've not trained themselves through constant use to distinguish good from evil. That is, this bunch of Christians, yes, they believe in Jesus, they're following Jesus, but they're still getting confused on what is right and wrong behaviour for someone who's following Jesus. They believe in Jesus, but they're making wrong choices in life, choices that Jesus wouldn't, wouldn't have them make. They're unacquainted with uh, being the, the way of righteousness. They're unable to distinguish good from evil. Now, for these Christians, as I've explained over the last couple of weeks, for them, their temptation coming out of a Jewish background, and given that it was hard work being a Christian facing persecution, the temptation for them was to go back to Judaism. And by the very fact that they were, they were entertaining that thought that they might abandon Jesus and go back to Judaism, they show how immature their faith in Jesus really is. They still can't make, up the, make good decisions about what's right or wrong. So they think, oh, well, let's abandon Jesus and go back to Judaism. They're showing at that point they have an infantile faith. They're immature. What's the cause of their infantile faith? Well, you can see it there in verse 11. He says, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are... Now, I don't know what your version says there, if you've got your Bible there. Mine says here, slow to learn. Some might say dull of understand, dull of hearing, or the word can actually be just sluggish of hearing. They are sluggish of hearing. What does that mean? That means that they're listening, but they're not actually taking it in. They're hearing the words, but they're sluggish in response. They don't actually take it in and respond appropriately. And his big concern is that they will become not just sluggish of hearing, that they'll become sluggish in faith, sluggish in life itself, following Jesus. Have a look if you then jump across to chapter 6, verse 12 which sort of parallels the beginning here. He says, verse 12, we do not want you to become, literally the word is again, sluggish. We do not want you to become sluggish, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So they're not actually taking in the word that they hear from Jesus anymore. They can't be bothered. 
They're not engaging with it anymore. They're not taking it in. And so for these people, these Hebrew Christians, still contemplating giving up Jesus, going back to Judaism, despite all they know, despite all that they've heard about Jesus being the fulfilment of Judaism, the fulfilment of all of Judaism's hopes and practices, they're seriously considering throwing in the faith in Jesus' towel. They're not listening to what they've been told about Jesus. They've become sluggish, dull in their hearing. And the writer's concern is they'll become sluggish in faith itself, in life, in following Jesus, that they might give up on that. Now, how this has come up in the book of, in the book of Hebrews is, if you've been following with us over these weeks, you'll know the writer to the Hebrews has been trying to say to them how Jesus is superior to whatever they had in Judaism. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is worthy of more glory than the great Moses. Jesus delivers a better Sabbath rest than could be had if you were part of God's Old Testament people. And he started, just in the chapter before, on talking about Jesus as a better high priest. And he's about to say a lot more about that. He's riffing on the Old Testament priest slash king figure of Melchizedek, or he's about to. But he pauses this point to say, I'm about to ramp up the content here. I'm going to go from you know, level 101 to level 303 in terms of your course here, in terms of understanding Jesus. I'm going to ramp it up at this particular moment. I'm about to, but I have a problem that you guys are still being infantile. You're still being immature when it comes to the things of Jesus. You should by now be teachers and teaching others, so you should be ready for what I'm about to say, but actually you're still unable to tell the basics of right from wrong. And I can see that in the fact that you're willing to chuck in Jesus. So this is a pretty cutting rebuke to them. Come on, he's saying. You should be doing better than this. Step up. Grow up. Stop being infantile in your faith. And so in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, he urges them to step up beyond the basics. Have a look at what he says there in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, he says, let us leave the elementary teachings about the Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so, he says. Now, I think what he's saying here in particular is that he's saying, I don't want to have to lay the foundations again to you of how Jesus fulfills the Jewish religious practices and the Jewish religion. I don't have to lay down the basics of why you should put your faith in Jesus if you're coming out of a Jewish background. Because all the things he lists there, the six things in three pairs, repentance from dead works, faith in God, instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, those were things that you knew if you were a Jew. They existed under the old covenant. And he's saying, I don't want to have to lay the foundation again of how of about how the Christ fulfills all those things. I mean, you've heard all of that before. That's why you've put your faith in Jesus as the Christ, the fulfillment of where you've come from. He says, I don't want to have to do that again. I want you to move on to deeper levels of understanding where you see how Jesus fulfills other aspects of the Jewish religion and religious pattern, particularly focusing on the high priest. So therefore, he urges them to step up and come with him 
Though he acknowledges actually there in chapter 6, verse 3, that it will be God who has to help them. He says, God permitting, we will do so. God's going to have to help them get there to understand this. Let's stop and then pause for a second. Solid food is useless for a baby. Right? I've had a number of children. They're all lovely and wonderful. And one of the things you learn as a parent, no one ever teaches you anything as a parent. But anyway, one of the things you learn is how to feed kids. And, you know, if when you get your baby and you're there and you tried to feed it, oh, let's, let's go out for a, a nice brunch like we've always done the rest of my at ease life pre-kids and you go out to brunch and you order, oh, let's have bacon and eggs for everybody. And here you are, little baby, here's the bacon and eggs. And you try to get it. It's just solid food don't work if you're an infant. Right? You've got to learn actually how to... Um, oh, I won't tell you. Anyway. Um, <laughs> solid food, though, doesn't work for babies. Right? Solid food doesn't work. You're here today at an EU public meeting. And the EU, if you've been around in the EU for a while, you can testify to this, or even if you've just been here a few weeks, hopefully you could say that this is true. EU, I hope, is full of lots of solid food for Christians. It's full of lots of solid food. But if you're a baby, if you're an infant in the faith, if you're stuck in an infantile faith, then that solid food that is served up to you in EU public meetings and on annual conference and EU small groups and EU equip courses, all of that solid food is just going to be lost on you if you're still stuck in an infantile faith. Because if you've stopped really listening, if you're stuck in an infantile faith, if you're still playing around with worldly ways, ways that you know Jesus would not endorse, if you're still unable in actual decisions to show that you know good from evil, then everything that you're getting in the EU is probably wasted. Wasted on you. Maturity is not about how much you know. Now that's really hard for us to get our heads around because your whole life, building to this day, today, has been about how much you can get in your head and regurgitate on demand. The whole school system climaxing in an ATAR has been about you learning more stuff, knowing more stuff and being able to sprout it out whenever required, in whatever form they require. And you come to university and it's no different. The only thing that's different is it's just the churn is quicker. Take in more, churn it out quicker. Churn out more, churn it out quicker, right? That's, it's, it's the same. And that's really hard then to understand, think that maturity is not actually about what you know. Because your whole life is telling you, the more I know, the better I am, the more sort of progressed I become. But maturity is not about what you know. Maturity is actually about the decisions you make. Maturity is about the decisions you make. And the same is true in following Jesus. Christian maturity is not measured by Bible knowledge. It's not measured by how many EU equipped courses you can do, though they are good to do. It's not measured by how much theology or apologetics you can sprout. Christian maturity is about how you live, what decisions you make. 
whether you're actually listening to what God is saying in his word and whether you're embodying his truth in your life. If you want to see what maturity looks like, look across to chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. He says here, the writer, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help them. There's some picture of what maturity looks like, that because of your love for God, you continually serve other people. You keep serving them because of your love for God. Or verse 11, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. That's what maturity looks like. Perseverance, diligence, continuing on to the end. Or verse 12, we do not want you to become sluggish, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So instead of being sluggish, Maturity looks like faith, patience while you wait for God's promises. That's Christian maturity. If you're stuck in an infantile, immature faith, playing around with the world, not really listening, then open your ears. Start being trained by God in his word so that you might be carried on by God to maturity in him. That's what he wants for you. That's his good plan and purpose for you. Not that you stay an infant in the things of Jesus, but that you come to maturity shown in all of life. Now, the writer then follows this rebuke with a, a warning, and the warning is pretty severe. And the warning is, don't fall away. Let's have a look at chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. He then says, for it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So first of all, falling away. He's been urging them to move on from their infantile faith in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6. Now he gives a particular reason why they should move on. For, he says, verse 4, it is impossible for those who've once been enlightened to be restored to repentance. He describes there in verses 4 and 5 the experience of someone being a Christian. They've been enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared in the, in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the goodness of God's word and its power. That's what it is to be a Christian, to know those things, to experience those things. And he says it's impossible to restore such a person if they fall away, restore them to repentance. Why? Well, look in the second half uh, of verse 6. Because, he says... To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. That is, he says, if you've been a Christian, you know these good things from God, you know faith in Jesus, you know the blessing of the Spirit, and then you've chosen to walk away. That is like those who, at the very first, crucified the Lord Jesus. 
you're siding with those who rejected Jesus and crucified him. Now, that's a pretty powerful critique for these Hebrew Christians as they contemplate returning to Judaism. And he's saying, if that's what you're going to do, if you're going to fall away from faith, then you're siding with those who killed Jesus. Now, a few uh, points here just to sort of clarify. His statement here is not about those who've never believed in Jesus. He's not talking about people who've never believed. Nor is he talking about people who appear to what some people like to call backsliding, people who seem to have faith and then they sort of, they sort of drop out of Christian life for a while and they sort of seem to follow the ways of the world and then they come back. He's not talking about people who are backsliding in a particular sort of moments of sin either. What he's talking about here is a decisive throwing away of faith in Jesus, a decisive turning away where they've tasted and experienced the truths in Jesus, but now they've walked away from him. It's very like Jesus' parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4. If you know that parable that Jesus tells of the word of God falling on different sorts of soil, he talks there about rocky soil and thorny soil, which initially received the word even with joy and some sort of growth happens. But then, whether it's because of persecution or whether it's because of worry or whether it's because of the pressures of the world or the temptation of the world, that faith disappears. It's a talking, it seems to me a very similar situation. There can be a genuine faith that is then lost, thrown away. Now, my observation just pastorally is that from the outside, it's quite hard to tell the difference between people who are, you might say, backsliding and people who have decisively fallen away. I have a friend who was a good friend through uni and we were in the EU together and in lots of ways he came to a lively faith in the Lord Jesus through his time at uni and through being part of the EU. He continued on in faith for many years, but when he was in his 30s, married, several kids, one day he was here at uni and uh, we caught up, we had lunch and he just said, Rowan, I've just decided it's all not true and I'm chucking it all in. And in one really decisive moment, he stopped going to church, stopped taking his kids to church, stopped having any real contact with me and just completely walked away from the faith. So is he somebody who's fallen away? Or, and there's no hope for him to come back in repentance to salvation in the Lord Jesus? Or is he a person who's wandered away, but in whom there might be still some faint flame of faith that one day the Lord in his mercy might grow again? I can't tell. I don't know. But I can keep praying for him. I keep praying that, that what he knew of Jesus is not extinguished, that it's not been entirely thrown out. And one day the Lord might graciously fan that faith back into real flame, that he might come back to saving faith in Jesus. So from the outside, I think it's often hard to tell. But there are very severe consequences. Chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, he gives a little illustration. He says, Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. 
but land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. The danger of being somebody who falls away from genuine faith in the Lord Jesus is that you are in danger of being cursed in the end, falling under the very judgment of God. It is a most severe warning. So he's here addressing people, not who are in this situation, because as he says in the very next verse, verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case. He's confident they're not in this situation, but they are stuck in infantile faith. And his concern is that sluggishness of hearing will become sluggishness of faith and whole life and they will completely fall away and fall under the judgment of God. He doesn't want that to happen. So he rebukes them in their being stuck in infantile faith and then he warns them of the possible consequence if they don't actually seek to grow to maturity. And then he gives them, and we'll finish with this, he gives them an encouragement. An encouragement why they should seek to grow in faith. And he sort of, he says two things about God. He says one that I've already mentioned in verse 10, God is not unjust. God will actually remember their faith and remember what they've done as a result of their faith and he'll, be, he'll uh, remember that. But the particular one I want to focus on, which is what the writer then focuses on, is that God is faithful. God is faithful. I'm thinking here about from verse 11 through to verse 20. And what you notice here, what he says about God's faithful is it's an encouragement to you to keep following Jesus. It's an encouragement to you to keep following Jesus and be diligent in that when you know that God will be faithful to you. If you keep trusting in Jesus, he will be faithful and fulfill all of his promises to you. He gives an example here of Abraham. Have a look at verses 13 to 15. He says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Let me pull apart what he says there. First of all, he talks about God making a promise in verse 13. You can see that. God makes a promise. Secondly, then God makes an oath. So in verse 14, he says, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. If you know the story about Abraham in the book of Genesis, God makes a promise to Abraham in chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17 of Genesis. But then in chapter 22, Abraham's faith is tested. God sets him a bit of a test and says, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. Now, Abraham goes through showing that he's going to be faithful to that, and the Lord, of course, stops him from doing something so terrible and horrible. But because he shows himself to be a person of faith, God responds with an oath on top of the promise he's already made. And the oath is in chapter 22, and he says, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. So Abraham had the promise, and he had an oath of God. Two things. God speaks two words to him. And the writer then says here in Hebrews chapter 6, he says there, if you jump down to verse 17, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. The two things that it's impossible for God to lie in are the promise and the oath. God sort of does 
double duty in terms of trying to assure Abraham and assure you that he will keep his promise. He makes a promise to you and confirms it with even an oath on the top of it. God really will come through with what he's promised for you. And the writer describes us as Christians, as people who fled to take hold of the hope that God holds out for you. Now, my experience of talking with Christians, I guess over quite a number of years here at Sydney Uni, is that hope is not something that Christians these days tend to think much about. We're pretty weak when it comes to hope. And I suspect it's partly because God's actually blessed us with so much right now that we don't look to the future very much. My guess is if we were living in a different part of the world, not enjoying quite so many of God's abundant physical blessings that we experience at the moment, maybe we would be people who had a stronger hope in what he'd promised for the future. But if you read through the New Testament, hope is... uh, held out constantly to God's people as this is the reason you're a Christian (laughs) because of the hope that God's promised the hope of forgiveness of sins the hope of final salvation the hope of life in God's presence in the new creation and what he's saying here is we have fled to take hold of that hope offered to us and God wants you to be greatly encouraged in that don't let go of that be a person who through diligence through faith and patience holds on to that hope Because God will come through for you. So strong is that hope, he says here in verse 19 and 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He's become high priest forever. Your hope is all in Jesus, who is already now, seated at God's right hand, your great high priest. Your hope is like a grappling hook. You know what a grappling, you know, if you game or none of you have ever used a real grappling hook, right? But a a grappling hook, you chuck it and then it drags you forward, right? Hope is your secure anchor. It's your grappling hook. Where is that grappling hook? It's not down in the depths. Your grappling hook, your anchor is in the heavens. That's where you're tethered to to the very presence of Jesus. And that's where he is going to drag you forward to. God is absolutely faithful. There is no doubt as you persevere in faith and patiently wait, he will get you there. So don't let go of the, of the faith that you have. So, summarise today. It's time to grow up. Time to grow up Christianly. Grow up By listening up. Listen with your ears because your hope, God's promise, is sure. So hold firmly to it. Let us not make foolish 